1845, Sir John Franklin, with 138 officers and men, members of the British Navy, Her Majesty's Navy, set off to find the Northwest Passage across the high Canadian Arctic. They were traveling in two three-masted ships. On each one of these ships was an auxiliary steam engine to supply auxiliary power when needed. They had a 12-day supply of coal. It was to be a journey of about two or three years. Each ship also had a library with 1,200 volumes. Each ship also had an organ. Also on each ship were china place settings, the cut glass wine goblets, and sterling silver flatware, Victorian ornate sterling silver flatware, engraved with each officer's initials and his family crest. They were issued no special clothing other than the regular uniforms of Her Majesty's Navy. They sailed off to the Arctic Ocean. For 20 years, they discovered their bodies. No survivors. Locked into the ice, paralyzed by the weather, 12-day supply of coal gone. Diaries later collected in expeditions, bodies found with writing upon them, bodies preserved by the freezing cold. Tells us something at the end of that historic expedition. In one group were 20 that tried to make it on foot. They left the ship and tried to cross the ice. They were found, frozen, carrying with them sterling silver flatware and some backgammon boards. They needed coats. They needed coal. They weren't equipped for the journey. They were lost. And the question I ask myself and I ask you this morning is this. Are you equipped for the journey? Do you have the right supplies for the trip tomorrow? Well, I'm, I'm not going anywhere, Buckner. Oh, yes, you are. You're going to sail into some uncharted waters tomorrow. You may have a plan for tomorrow. You may already have an appointment book for tomorrow. But that's only a hope and a wish. That's not a reality. One single telephone call or one less heartbeat will change tomorrow's schedule.
We're sailing off into uncharted waters tomorrow. It may be the office, the school, the home, church, wherever it might be. And the question I ask myself and I ask you, are you equipped? Do you have fuel for tomorrow? Do you have some fire inside of you to give you energy for dealing with the vicissitudes of life? Do you have the warmth of God's Spirit about you to protect you against the howling winds of adversity and temptation? Are you ready for the trip? Tragedy of taking a trip with the wrong supplies. Now there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with sterling silver flatware and cut glass goblets and backgammon boards unless they are a substitute for something much more essential, something much more basic. That's good decoration. But it won't help you in sub-freezing temperatures and ravaging storms. You need something else. And it's that question I want to ask myself and ask you today. Do you have that something else? And I want to ask you parents here today, are you providing your children with something more than some silverware and backgammon boards? As they look at you and determine by your pursuits and behavior what's important, are they getting more than sterling silver flatware and backgammon boards for enforcement inside of their lives for the living of tomorrow? You pack for your small children when they go off to summer camp. You be sure that they have all of the essentials for going off for a week or for two weeks or for however long it might be to summer camp. Are you, by your involvement in the life of God's work and in the life of the church, are you helping your children get packed for their journey? Are they getting some spiritual verities and values buried deep within their hearts to warm their spirits and to fuel their lives for the coming tests of tomorrow? Are you doing that? You're responsible for that. I'm responsible for that. We as a church are responsible for helping you to do that. Can't do it if you're not here. Can't do it if you're not participating. Can't do it if your children are not here. But we'll work together if you'll work and help equip them for facing tomorrow. And they're going to need a lot of equipment. It's cold out there. And it's getting colder. It's tough out there and it's going to get tougher. And so we need more than a 12-day supply of spiritual energy. And we can enjoy the silverware and the backgammon boards, but we're going to need more than that to survive the winter of discontent that's coming. Simon Peter got headed in the wrong direction and Jesus intercepted him because he saw that Simon Peter was going off without proper preparation. 21st chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus had appeared, had been resurrected, had appeared to the disciples. And Simon Peter, thinking because he had committed some sins, because he had cursed the name of the Lord, because he had denied the Lord, because he'd fouled up in a lot of ways, he thought he was forever relegated uh, to the cellar, that he'd never be once again accepted as part of the first string of apostles and so he was going to go back fishing Jesus came in that marvelous dramatic wonderful scene I think 
Maybe my favorite story in the life of Jesus and his relationship with people is that conversation with Simon Peter beside the Sea of Galilee early that morning when they'd fished all night. They'd gone back. Simon Peter says, I go out to fish, third verse. Simon Peter told them, and they said, well, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Put those two ends together. They, they, they are biographical of a lot of people. Night and nothing. Worked hard, energetic, doing the best you can. But you're fishing on the wrong side of the boat. You come up with night and nothing. What a despairing eulogy that is to pronounce over a misdirected life. Night and nothing. But Jesus showed up on the bank, called out to them, and said, oh, we fished all night, haven't caught anything. Jesus said, why don't you try another direction? Why don't you try another direction? Throw your net over on the other side of the boat. The way you're going is not, the, not, not paying off for you, is it? So they cast their net on the other side of the boat, and they caught so many fish they couldn't land them. And if you're not familiar with the story, read the last chapter of the little book of John. And Simon Peter heard John say, it's the master, it's the Lord. And Simon Peter jumped overboard, this impetuous man that he was, and swam, swam ashore. And Jesus, Jesus built a little fire there, and he had fish. They didn't have any. He had the fish. He had the fish. He had what they needed. It wasn't out there. It was with him. He had the fire going. They needed warmth. Simon Peter came up out of that water cold and came over there and huddled around the fire and made... He, he was even colder because he was nervous. Last time he'd seen the Lord, he'd been cursing him. They took Jesus out of the house of Caiaphas just as Simon Peter denied him the third time in fulfillment of what Jesus said. You'll deny me three times before the cock crows. Simon said, no, I won't. Jesus said, wait and see. And he did. And so Simon Peter went down in his own mind, his own estimation. And so he just went off back to the boats. So that's the last time he'd seen the Lord. The Lord had appeared to the disciples, and Simon Peter was there, but he hadn't had a conversation with him. He'd hung back. Finally, all the disciples got there. They had to pull all those fish ashore, and they finally got there and huddled around the fire, some warmth there, some food there. Had some food and some fuel and some warmth. You see what they had? Jesus providing that, providing that for them then. He provides it for us now. And... Uh, <clears throat> Finally, Jesus breaks the silence, and he does a marvelous thing, as he always does. Simon Peter had denied the Lord three times, so Jesus gave him a chance to cancel out all three denials because he asked him three times, Simon, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Now, that's the key. That's the first supply you need in your heart and in your life. That's the first ingredient I need for the living of these days. I need to know that in response to the love of God for me, that I am loving him in return. I know that God loves me. He's proved that time and time again. The cross, the resurrection, the whole ministry of Jesus is irrefutable, un in undeniable, and incontrovertible evidence of the fact that God loves us. What more does he have to do to prove his love for us? God loves us. And you have you familiar with the old Broadway play, Fanny? set in the south of France on the coast of Marseilles where a young man named Marius had fallen in love with Fanny and then he ran away to sea for a couple of years and came back and Fanny had married a young man by the name of Panis. 
And she had given her child a name for Marius had gone to see. And she'd given him, given her his love and his support and raised the child. Marius came home and he was angry. And he was talking to his father, Cesar. And he said, I want to marry Fanny and I want my child. And he asked his father the question, who is the father anyway? The one who gives life or the one who buys the bibs? And Cesar, in a very tender but very firm voice, said to his son, the father is the one who loves. The one who loves. That's the father. He loves. You go back into the languages, the languages of the world and determine the root, study the etymology of the word father and in at least ten of the major languages of the world the root for the word father is the one who gives support. That's what a father does. It's what our God does. He gives us support for the journey. He gives us fuel for our souls and warmth for our life and assurance. The assurance of his presence. Now, Simon, if you love me, do something about it. As Jesus responded when I asked, what is the number one commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, listen to him here talking to, Pilate, uh, to, to, to Peter. Translate that into the practical applications of what it means to love your neighbor. In most, or in some of the older translations, Jesus' uh, word, do you love me, and Simon's response, yes, Lord, you know I love you, are not translated accurately. If you read Simon's response, he didn't just say, yes, Lord, I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. That's what you read three times. That's not what he said three times. The first time he said, care for my lambs. Care for my little ones. Little ones, not only actual little ones, little ones, little children. Jesus is concerned about all kinds of little ones, helpless people, powerless people, homeless people, hungry people. If you love me, you care for them. Why do you call me Lord, he says, and not do what I say? You care for my little ones who can't care for themselves. Feed my sheep. And then care for my sheep. Those are the three statements. Care for the lambs. Feed my sheep. Care for my sheep. That's what... Christians are supposed to do for other people. We're to care. We're to feed. We're to help. 
And I want you to notice that this is the introduction to the Great Commission. Later on, Jesus said, Go into all of the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything I've commanded you and I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. Well, what do you do when you go out there into the world? You do what we better be doing right here in the world we're in right now, and that is caring for little ones and feeding and helping and teaching. The Great Commission doesn't begin at the city limits of San Antonio and reach out elsewhere. It begins right here, right in our city, right in our church, and right in our homes. Now I want to take a little parenthesis here, and I want to talk to fathers and men for just a few moments. You women can eavesdrop if you want. You're welcome to do that. But I want to say a word to men. You have a responsibility before God to be a man of God in your home. You're to be the spiritual leader in your home. The Bible says that a man who does not provide for his own is worse than an infidel. That is strong language. Now, God is talking about a lot more than financial provision, though that's important. That's not number one. And there's some fathers who think that's their only responsibility is to provide for the financial needs of the family. Just get the silverware and the backgammon boards. That is not the primary responsibility. The primary responsibility of the father is to provide spiritual leadership, moral example, to be the one from whom they get their strength. Now, I know in this church there are a lot of single mothers, and I believe they're the heroines of the decade. And they're endeavoring to be both mother and father to children, and they have my prayers and my encouragement and my support. And let me just say parenthetically, if you are here and you are a divorced parent, father, and you are present listening to me today, I want to say to you, in the name of God, you're responsible to provide child support for those children of yours. If you don't, according to God, you're worse than an infidel. Now, I don't know what he means by that, but by the grace of God and the response of my life, I'm not going to find out. And Jesus said it would be better that a millstone be placed about your neck and you be thrown in the sea than that you cause some little one to hurt. That's the strongest statement Jesus ever made. And we men need to hear that. For our children are looking to us and modeling their lives in many ways after us. You need to be sexually faithful to your wife. Oh, but Bugner, you don't understand what it's like. I understand what it's like. I was a man before I was a preacher. <laughs> and I didn't stop being a man when I became a preacher. Don't tell me that the God you and I worship can't help us control our glands. How big is your God? And your commitment to him. 
I talked to some wonderful young mothers at MOP, about 40 or 50 of them this past week. They said, you know, we just don't, we don't get to communicate much. The men are, they're off and they're busy. And, and, and I listened to a lot of things. They weren't bad-mouthing people. They were just opening up their own hearts. And my heart went out to them. And I thought of a sign that's up in one of our young adult departments that said, I never heard a man say, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. Never heard a man say, I wish I'd bought more silverware and backgammon boards. The, the, the difficulty, I think, is not that you don't care. You care. That's why you're working. You're trying to make money to support them and care for them. That's a wonderful demonstration of love. But that's not the, that's not the primary way that children determine love. Dr. Wayne Grant, marvelous pediatrician, author in our church, says, you know how children spell love? T-I-M-E. It's the way wives spell love a lot of times, too. T-I-M-E. And, and what, what I heard them saying, and I think this is true, a tendency on the part of men, I'm one of them, I can talk about it. That the tendency is for love to become kind of passive. Like the woman who said to her husband, they'd been married many years, she said, do you love me? And he said, well, of course. I told you the day I got married to you that I loved you. And he said, if I ever change my mind, I'll let you know. <laughs> That's terrible. God. Yogi Berra, that great philosopher, said. And he was that remarkable man, all-star, Hall of Famer, catcher for the Yankees, manager. Oh, and he could put words together like nobody. He... He missed a, an easy pitch. It was a pass ball. Got through him. Got by him. Man scored in third. And the Yankees lost the game. Error on Yogi. He didn't have many. And the newsmen afterwards in the locker room were asking him, Yogi, what happened? He said, I nonchalanted it. I just nonchalanted it. Just didn't pay attention, wasn't concentrating. Pow, there it was gone. And run scores and you lose the game. I tell you, my friend, living in your house is some things a lot worse to be lost than the game. Silverware and backgammon boards won't do it. They need some fuel. I need some fuel. You need some fuel. We need the indwelling presence of the living God that comes into our lives and we accept his love confess our sins and know the power of forgiveness and then there comes to dwell in us the power of God and there is a never-ending supply of his energy fueling us from making it through whatever exigencies and vicissitudes tomorrow might bring. I don't care to be a part of some spiritual Franklin expedition and I don't believe Trinity Baptist Church wants to be a part of some spiritual Franklin expedition. We are here to translate the Word of God into practical lives of relationships to other people that make a difference in their lives. We're not here primarily to be worried about which way the Southern Baptist Convention is going to go. We'll have a few votes on that. But God didn't call us into existence 
to bear witness to the Southern Baptist Convention. He didn't call us into existence to bear witness to Baptist. He didn't call us into existence to even bear witness to Trinity Baptist Church. He called us into existence to bear witness to Jesus Christ by caring and feeding and serving and loving other people. And that's our ministry. And that's our calling. And we're all in this together. And what is the church but to be God's litmus test that says to the world, look what could happen if everybody would love each other. Look what could happen if people forgave each other and encouraged each other and helped each other. That's why the church was left here. We weren't left here to be holy Joes, parading our piety, walking around, talking about what good things we've done. We're to be here witnessing by our actions corporately to the world that we're a different kind of people. And we witness by our life together as to what Christ can do in a community of people when he has the ascendancy in their lives. That's our witness. And if we don't do that, we have no business being here. We're here to join hands and hearts together to translate that, yes, I love you, into caring, into feeding, into sharing with one another. I told you the story. Many of you have heard it. I close again. Jimmy Durante, that incredible entertainer, that remarkable man, was invited to speak and entertain for a few moments a group of uh, veterans. And he said, I've only got about five minutes. I'm only come and just sort of say hello, and then I'll just put in an appearance and leave and have other engagements. They said, well, just do that. They'd love to see you. And so he showed up, and he came out in front of a huge group of, of uh, veterans, and uh, he started entertaining his friends were waiting for him over there in the wings and expecting him to be through in a couple of three or four or five minutes and he wasn't. He kept going and he kept going. Went five minutes. He went ten minutes. He went fifteen minutes. He went twenty minutes. And when he finally walked off stage, I say, look, you've been out there twenty minutes. You said you were only going to be out there about five minutes. We got to go. He said, come here. I want to show you something. And he pointed down there on the front row and there were two vets seated side by side. One of them was seated here. He didn't have a right arm. The other one seated next to him on this side didn't have a left arm. And every time Jimmy Durante said something funny that they approved of, this guy with his left hand and this guy with his right hand would clap together. We're all wounded people. We're all vets. We've not all been wounded in the same way, but we've all been wounded. And we're here not to hit each other with those hands or point those fingers. For every time I point the finger, I'm always reminded of the fact when I preach that every time I point this finger, I got three of them pointing back at me. Three times as much for myself as for anybody else. We're not here to do that. We're here to put our hands together to support one another, to pray for one another, and to love one another. And by that praying and caring and serving, be a witness to Christ and be a testimony to what it means to love God. Yes, Lord, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Care for my lamb. Do something. Start this morning by rededicating your life to Christ. Rededicating your life to your husband or wife your children, your children to you. 
I'll tell you six words that can change your life if you'll use them. Can change your relationship, change your whole world. I was wrong. I am sorry. You say, but she, I don't care about what she did. But he doesn't, I don't care about what he doesn't do. I was wrong. I accept responsibility for my actions. I'm sorry. Start with God, begin with Him, and then let it filter down in other relationships. And I promise you, Jesus will make a difference in your life and in our world. Come this morning to trust Him. I'm here to greet you, welcome you, share this time of fellowship with you. A number came at the 8 o'clock service, accepting Christ, joining this church. You come. Just as I am, I come. Yes, Lord, I love you. Okay, then. Help these people feed my sheep, care for my lambs. Come on. I'll be here to greet you. Let's stand. Let's sing. You come.